And thank you for being such uh, great hosts, and uh, you've definitely demonstrated uh, hospitality uh, to me and, and my wife. I thank you for that. I invite you to join me in a word of prayer as we begin this morning. Father, we are grateful to you for this time. We pray that you would give us the grace to not only hear what you are going to tell us from your word this morning, Father, but the grace to follow through and live into it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As Pastor Ryan just shared with you, we're working through that sharp profile. I like to call it a profile because it's a description of what a, what a Christian looks like. Again, not the only things that uh, are becoming of a Christian, but those are basic ones. Um, I'm not saying if you're missing these, uh, you are definitely not going to heaven, but I would say that if you're missing these, I, I would have a hard time affirming that you are. Um, and so these are things that are so basic, so central throughout Scripture and throughout the history of the church. We don't, we've not really seen people debate these. Like, no, you could be a Christian and just never read Scripture. Like, that's not really debated, but somehow we fall into sort of these ruts and these, uh, we miss these habits. And I think... Uh, it's a good reminder for us to return to some of these basics and kind of go over our lives and make sure we're showcasing these things, but never as a way to earn our way with God. So as I shared this weekend, works will never get you to Christ, but Christ will always get you to work. And so if we are workless as Christians, we're sort of not demonstrating fruit from this conversion that we say we've had, we should examine ourselves and make sure we're in the Lord. If you are in the Lord, it shows grace looks like something. And so we've covered a few different attributes of, of a Christian. And one that we would like to look at today is prayer, or more specifically, persistent prayer. Persistent prayer. When I was a kid growing up, every New Year's Eve, we would... Uh, binge the Twilight Zone marathon on TV. Now, that was the only way to binge back then, <laughs> was if a TV channel decided to roll out every episode of a show. I don't know how often they did it, but they did it with Twilight Zone. I enjoyed it. And um, I'll recap an episode for you now. And if, if, I mean, spoiler alert, but it's been 60 years, so I, <laughs> I don't know where you've been. The scene opens up, and there's a man alone on an asteroid millions of miles away from the Earth. He is a prisoner uh, consigned to solitary uh, confinement, but his place of solitude is not a dungeon or a prison cell, but a place out in space where there's no one else. And for miles and miles, he just sees rock and sand. He's got this little trailer with a couple things in it. Um, somewhat torturous, I would think. I mean, a chessboard with no one to play with, for example. Every once in a while, a rocket lands, and I don't know who the dude is, uh, the, the warden. <laughs> Someone in charge comes out. He feels really bad for this guy. He kind of believes he's innocent, but they uh, try to push the appeal to court, and the appeals get rejected, and it just looks like this guy is just going to be here. Forever, He drops off some food and things to try to console him, hang in there. I know it seems like forever. The guy's just beside himself, angry, upset. He's lonely. I think the name of the episode is The Lonely. 
the lonely. Some, somebody's an expert. We, that's your favorite one. We need to do lunch, man. Right? Your, your treat. Um, shouldn't have spoken up. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so it, a weird turn in the episode, the warden or whoever this rocket traveler dude is, he's like, I know uh, I can't make this easier for you and I can't move things along in court, but we have something for you. And uh, it sounds way cornier when I say it than when you're watching the movie, but he gives them an Android, not a phone, <laughs> you know, a robot. Uh, but the robot is created to look like a female about his age. She's beautiful, she's kind, she's well-spoken, she loves what he loves, she likes what he likes. They stargaze together kind of starts falling in love. I mean, doesn't say it, but as you're watching the episode, you're like, he's got companionship. And he's told that this is a robot. But over the months, maybe the years that he's spending time with this robot, she doesn't seem like a robot. She seems like a great companion that he now loves. Rocket Man eventually comes back and tells him, hey, I've got great news. You're released. You're released, man. The appeal went through. They found new evidence, whatever it was. You're innocent. Don't quote me. I'm recapping something I saw a long time ago. Some of y'all are going to go home on Hulu and like, he didn't say. Um, but anyway, you get to go home, but you can't bring any things. You can't pack a bag. You can't bring your chessboard. You can't bring your favorite coffee mug. You can't bring a pen. You've got to bring just you. We have just enough room for your exact weight. That's it. Can't bring anybody. He's like, I can't leave whatever her name is. I don't remember. He had a name for her. I, I can't leave her behind, right? Um, can't bring her, man. Can't bring her. This dude's about to not get on the rocket and leave this lonely asteroid because of this robot. So one of my favorite characters in the entire series of Twilight Zone, this warden rocket man, pulls out a pistol Shoots her right in the head. And you're like, oh no, because you feel for this guy. Over the course of the episode, you started to like her. You like this companionship. She is really great for him. And then he just blows her gears out. <laughs> and so the prisoner in shock looks at the ground and this one that he's almost stayed on the asteroid for. He sees the springs and the coils and the gears and realizes what he almost did. I think as Christians, we are, we are blessed with the amazing grace to meet a wonderful Savior who says, I will be back and I will come, not as a rocket man, but I will come and rescue, bring you finally home. But you need to wait. While you're waiting, you're telling other people about me, and you're growing, and you're maturing, but you need to wait. And in our waiting, we grow weary. And as we grow weary, we start falling in love with something that the world presents as companionship that isn't real. So Jesus comes alongside, and he's, he's like, he's got to blow up this robot, wake us up, so that we don't give up waiting for the day. I think we see that really clearly in many passages, but definitely in Luke chapter 18. Would you turn there with me to Luke 
chapter 18. I believe the verses will be provided for you on the screen. If the translation seems a little off, I am reading out of the ESV, um, but really close to the CSB if you're following along there. If you have the opportunity to turn with me, we will see a couple of things more than what can be provided on the screen, but it's okay if you follow along on the screen as well. But Luke chapter 18, Jesus just comes out of a paragraph um, that I'm conveniently skipping. I'll leave that paragraph to Pastor Ryan. But I think some of the basics there is Jesus talks about his return is like, hey, it's going to be obvious. You're not gonna, you shouldn't come to church like, did Jesus return on Tuesday? Because I'm not, did he come back, uh, Pastor Ryan? You guys are both in trouble, right? <laughs> Jesus is like, it's going to be obvious, like lightning in the sky. It's going to be obvious, but it's going to be, um, there's going to be a lead up time and it's going to be difficult. Um, it's going to be kind of like Noah's day as he was preparing that ark for a while before the ark was ready and the flood came. It's going to be like Lot as there was a lead up time to it and Lot was a little bit in love with the robot, wasn't he? His wife looked back and she didn't make it. The robot. I mean, that's basically what was happening there. So he draws these parallels with Noah, with Lot, what happened in their day, that's what's going to happen with the return of the Son of Man. And he recognizes that people are going to be weary, tired in the waiting, and he connects that loss of hope to prayerlessness in the church. I think oftentimes when we feel a little guilty that we're not that prayerful, we think maybe it's because... Um, I don't know what to pray, or maybe because I just am not spiritual enough, or any number of reasons why we feel like we're too distracted. I think, at least in this passage, the reason for prayerlessness is loss of hope. A loss of sense that Jesus is returning, and that return might be soon. That rocket might show up on this asteroid, and I need to be ready for it. We're like, ah, that rocket's not going to come. So let me just get real comfortable with this asteroid. And when you get comfortable... And you grow weary in the waiting and weary in the hoping. What's to pray about? That's, that's essentially what happens to our hearts and in our minds. So Jesus wants to remedy that prayerlessness due to the hopelessness, the weariness. He wants to remedy that with his own episode, his own story, a parable. A parable. And we find that in chapter 18 right at the top. He tells us what should drive persistent prayer. If hopelessness drives prayerlessness, then what drives prayerfulness? Hope. A heart that's not weary, but energized and encouraged. And this parable is given to us to that effect. Uh, some parables, we just get it and we need to figure out as we go. This one, Luke gives us the truth right at the top. Verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He's giving them a parable, a story that comes alongside a truth to illustrate it. And the effect of that parable, what Jesus was after, so none of us miss it, so none of us go, wow, that was a cool story, but what was it about? Luke just gives it to you right up front. The reason why Jesus taught this parable is so that disciples, his followers, would always pray and not lose heart. I think when 
Luke says always pray, I think he means persistently, not without pause, but without giving up, without giving up, without neglecting it, forsaking it. And when he says not lose heart, that can be translated uh, grow weary or grow tired. I think the CSB has not give up. But grow tired of what? I think it's growing tired of resisting this world. I think it's growing tired of waiting. And I think Jesus is saying that when you lose heart, yes, there's lack of prayer. But to encourage the prayerfulness, I want you to not lose heart. So sit down. I'm going to tell you a story. And the story is captured for us in just these three verses here, two through five. He said, in a certain city... There was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So the first character we have in the story is a judge who could care less about God. He could care less about people. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect man. He doesn't love God. He doesn't love neighbor. He is the opposite of the law upon which all of God's law hangs, to love God and then love neighbor as yourself. I don't care about God, and therefore I don't care about neighbor. He is the opposite of what God expects in a person, of of what God is like. He's the opposite. So this is a wicked judge. He's not a righteous judge. He's a wicked judge. Entering the scene is a widow. Verse 3, And there was a widow in that same city, who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So you've got two characters, three if you count the adversary, but we don't really know who the adversary is or what the situation is. It's not just that she's a widow. Some injustice has happened to her or is happening to her, and the only way that she can get out from under that injustice is to appeal to a judge for the judge to do something about it. Okay, so now keep, keep why is Jesus putting this Why is Luke putting this parable right after Jesus' teaching on his return? Because he's teaching, it's going to be really easy to give up and to grow weary, and you feel like there's no justice in your life. It's hard to be an Israelite in Babylon. It's hard to be a Christian in this world. It's hard to be a stranger in exile. It's wearying. It'll tire you out. Especially because not just sickness, disease, everything that everyone struggles with, but that extra layer that Christians specifically struggle with. We all suffer the same diseases as everybody else. If, if the economy goes south, we all suffer that the same way everybody else suffers it. But we've got that extra layer of not accommodating culture and being hated for it. We've got that extra layer being the crazy people that keep talking about this boat and this coming flood. And they're like, there's no such thing as a flood. You idiot. That will make us grow weary quick. So Jesus is using a widow to come alongside us to show us what it's like to feel like justice should be happening, but it's not happening. Is it ever going to come? What does the widow do about it? She approaches this judge. In verse 4, it says, For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Self, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, see, he just owns it. Even though I hate God and I hate people. Those won't drive me to do the right thing, but someone else, something else is going to drive me to do the right thing. 
even though I don't fear God and I don't respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. His own selfish motives. I'm just so sick of the knocking. I'm so sick of the emails. I'm so sick of the phone calls. She keeps showing up at my door. She keeps interrupting my dinner. If I just give her the justice she wants, she'll just go away and leave me alone. That's, that's why he's going to do it. What's the end result? Well, the justice that she's looking for got done. Even though he's wicked, he still provided the justice that she's looking for. The, resistim, the resistance uh, that he tried to put up against her continual asking eventually wore him down. And when he says uh, she will, she will, if I don't do this for her, I will be beat down, right, by her continual coming. Uh, one of the primary glosses for the Greek word there is to be struck under the eye. I'm sick of these black eyes. And so he does it for her. Now Jesus is going to explain what he's doing here with this parable and how it's supposed to encourage our hearts, because it should. And the Lord said, Jesus, in verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Now remember, that was emphasized twice. This guy neither feared God nor respected man in verse 2. He says it of himself in verse 4, that he doesn't fear God or he doesn't respect man. So Jesus is reminding us a third time, this unrighteous judge Listen to what he says. So you're supposed to go back, rewind the episode. What did he say? He said, I'm going to give her justice. Then he says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, I think this is where some of us, many of us maybe, we, we miss this parable. Some of us, we're taught to pray our Father in heaven, maybe didn't have a great relationship with our Father. We're already off on the wrong foot because we have to struggle to image a righteous Father, a present Father, a good Father. Here, we're told we should approach God, and he tells us a parable about a judge the last thing he wants to do is step in and do something about it. And then we're like, yeah, that's kind of how I feel like God is. Like, I've got to kind of pull his arm, you know, like wrangle him to do something. And I just kind of give up in prayer. But notice Jesus is not drawing a comparison between God and the unrighteous judge. He's drawing a contrast between God and the unrighteous judge. The argument is a how much more argument. In other words... If this unrighteous judge would even give her justice, how much more would God, who is righteous, grant it right away? You don't have to beat him down. You don't have to twist his arm. You don't have to knock and knock and knock and kind of wake him up out of bed, and then God is going to sort of begrudgingly be like, fine, I'm going to do this for you. God is not like that is the point of the parable. Now, even if the point of the parable was, yeah, God is kind of grumpy, if you just keep knocking, even our grumpy God will come up and do something. We should still be prayerful people, shouldn't we? Because even if God were a grumpy God, at least he's eventually going to get up and bring justice to his church that is getting pummeled 
by oppression in this world. If you're here today, this morning, you feel like, well, I don't really feel like I'm getting that oppressed. We need a better global awareness of churches around the world today that are being killed, kidnapped. Imagine a troop marching in right now and just smashing all the sound equipment and then leaving. Stuff like that happening like this morning. And so there's this pressure and this longing for God to do something about it. Even if God were begrudgingly going to answer our request, he still would eventually answer the request if the parable were a comparison. But because the parable is a contrast between the father and the judge, we recognize that Jesus' point is that God won't delay. Will he delay long over them? If he's righteous, the unrighteous guy delayed for a while, but God's not going to delay because he is righteous, and he does hear the cries of the saints crying to him day and night. He's not going to delay long over them at the end of verse 7. He's not going to delay long over them because he is a just God, and he is a righteous God. Now, I'm just going to name the elephant in the room because some of us are like, well, this was written like 2,000 years ago, man. Will he delay? Apparently. <laughs> Let's just be honest. But I want you to consider a few things. First, as the, the, the church of Jesus Christ, his body has been waiting a really long time for this final return. But long time in comparison to what? can't believe I'm old enough to say this now, but with the four kids, you know, um, if they need to be picked up after school, it's like all these texts, where are you, where are you? And actually, our younger two don't even have to text. They use the find my phone and see exactly where mom is. <laughs> How much longer at Target, mom? I'm out of school. I mean, do you remember no cell phones? Maybe you were privileged to have a pager. You had to find a coin, find a, a booth, put the thing in there, or call collect and hurry up and instead of saying your name, say, I'm out of school, you know. <laughs> and then you just had to sit there. You're like, I had no idea if they were coming, when they were coming. I remember this morning over breakfast they said they were coming. All my other friends got picked up. And I'm sitting there what seems like for an eternity. Now looking back on it, if I were telling somebody that story, they'd be like, wow, in eternity, did you ever get picked up? Well, yeah, obviously, I'm sitting here talking to you, right? <laughs> I mean, did it get dark? No, it didn't get dark. It was still daytime when they picked me up. I mean, did you starve for days? No, I had dinner that night. I mean, it just shut up, man. I'm trying to tell you. It was a long time, all right? I didn't have to find my phone, and it was torturous. The point is, looking back, what seemed in the moment like an eternity, looking back just a few years later, I'm like, well, it wasn't that long. Perspective. Perspective. 2,000 years, yeah, that seems a long time in comparison to what? I think in eternity, we'll look back and be like, yeah, we waited a little bit, huh? Oh, yeah, that's right, we did. We did. Another point, I think, to understand is Jesus can't mean a short amount of time by our standards because a delay is built into, let's say, the Great Commission. 
want you to baptize a few people, but I'll be right back. Go to the ends of the earth. How long does that take? How long did the disciples think that would take? The ends of the earth? Well, they thought the earth was smaller. If he said to the ends of New Jersey, it'd be, take a while. A delay is already built into it. Now, sometimes God does relieve us of momentary persecution. It's not that if we see a brother pastor in jail, some missionary we're supporting, and they got arrested, we're like, well, don't pray for him to get released. We're just supposed to pray for Christ's return. No, God might release him, so pray for that. That's legitimate. But the final relief of this world's pressure on the church tarries a little bit. The point is, though, that it won't tarry forever. And so we should pray for it. Pray for Christ's return. Pray for the relief that God will eventually grant saints living in this wearying world and get us off this planet, so to speak. Now, as we see this parable, it, what it emphasizes is persistent prayer and persistent prayer as a mark of a believer. Not that some people should pray, the extra spiritual people should pray, believers pray, and believers should pray persistently. Look at verse 8 carefully again. It says, I tell you, I tell you, he, God, will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, even though that's true, I wonder how many people know that's true. I wonder how many people will continue to expect that to be true. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now track with the argument. He's been talking about prayerlessness and encouraging prayerfulness. And the reason why he gave this parable is to help them do what? Pray, right? So you would think he would say, when the Son of Man returns, nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, will he find people praying? That's, that's what you would think he would say. But he doesn't. He switches it to faith. You're like, topic changer. <laughs> like when you're talking to somebody and you're on a topic and then they just switch and you're like, man, I wasn't done with that topic. <laughs> Why do you switch it to faith when we're talking about prayer and Luke goes out of his way Jesus goes out of his way to make it really clear that this is about prayerfulness, persistent praying, like the persistent widow. And then he switches it to faith. Am I going to find faith at all? And I think the reason why he puts faith there instead of praying is because it's the same thing. Someone of faith is a believer. That's what it means. Believe is just the verb of faith, right? A believer is someone who has faith. Believers pray. Non-believers don't pray, but what do believers do? Pray. And I think that's why we see that there. It's like Jesus is saying, will he find prayerfulness? But he's helping us understand that if you have faith at all, if you don't give up on the faith, then you won't give up on prayer because prayer is what faith people do. And he's after persistent prayer. The believer prays, not one time, but how does he describe it as they experience the difficulties of being a Christian in this world? They cry out to God day and night. That's prayer. That's prayer, crying out to God. 
So it's pretty simple, right? If, if I'm pretty comfortable in this world, there's nothing for me to cry about. And if there's nothing for me to cry about, I'm not going to pray. Unless I want some things. But then we're back to that analogy I used yesterday of Jesus, Jesus sort of being a genie. I rub him when I want to get one of my wishes or like a celestial vending machine. I put a coin in. I attend church a couple times. But you got to give me something. You know, that, that is not how a believer approaches the Lord. But what this parable is talking about is when you feel the pressures of this world, rather than giving into the pressures of the world, running with the current to make it easier for yourself, you hold your ground. And as it grows uncomfortable to live in this world, you recognize that it's uncomfortable, painful even, drives you to tears even, but you take that to God. In the morning, in the night, you take it to the Lord. And so we need to be driven by our uncomfortableness and even our pain to be a prayerful people. And if I'm not being prayerful, one of the things I need to ask myself is why am I not experiencing pain? Am I too accommodating to this world? Maybe. Jesus is assuming you're going to live loud in this world. He's assuming you're going to be about this ark and people are going to think you're crazy. But know that the ark will arrive and you will be rescued finally. But in the meantime, pray. Pray that you will make it. Pray that you will hang in there. Pray that you won't grow weary. Pray that God will bring justice. I'm not sure how many of us have that category of praying. We pray that God would save people. We pray that God would save our enemies, and I think we should. But then you get these awkward scripture passages, like in the Psalms, where it's like, God, crush the enemies. And we're like, well... That's Old Testament. And you get to New Testament, and Jesus is pulling out his sword and striking his enemies down. And then John is like, Lord Jesus, please don't come yet. No, John says, join me in praying, Lord Jesus, come. I want you to come. I want you to ride that white horse. I remember sitting in a class once, and the professor was a counselor who specialized in uh, sexual abuse cases. And he would often give his clients verses to dwell on, scripture to dwell on to help them with their issues and their problems and their hurts and their pains and their trauma. But with this one client, the verses were kind of, you know, not really hitting it for her. And uh, she came to a session once and she says, uh, Dr. So-and-so, I, I finally came across a passage that gives me hope. He's like, oh, what? Psalm 23, you know, John 3, what, what do you got? She's like, you know in Revelation when Jesus comes riding that horse and his garment is spattered with blood and he's cutting everybody down? He's like, yeah. <laughs> She's like, that brings me comfort because he doesn't let them get away with it. Have you ever been bullied in school and you bring it to the teacher and the teacher knows the parents are big donors to the school and so they don't do anything about it? That's injustice. God is not like that. He doesn't sweep things under the rug because someone paid them off. He will bring justice. It, may not be, it might not be right now. We might have to look like idiots for a while. We might have to be a punching bag for a little while. But it won't last forever. And we don't just trust in a God who's going to bring justice. We, it is right and appropriate to pray that God brings in justice. 
Quickly, I want you to notice how Luke backs this up, this idea that we should be crying out to the Lord. The prayerful person is going to be someone that recognizes they're completely dependent on God to do what only God can do, like bring justice finally to his elect. And this crying out to God demonstrates this total lack of dependence on myself and total dependence on God. And to sort of drive that home, he follows us up with three portraits. And some of them are negative, some of them are positive. In other words, don't be this person, be this person. The kind of person I'm talking about that, that models the persistent widow is not like this, but more like this. And the first one that he does is he contrasts the Pharisee and the tax collector. We won't unpack these verse by verse, uh, but verses 9 through 14, Luke immediately follows up the parable of the persistent widow with this contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. And one of the primary differences between the Pharisee, the person you're not supposed to be like, and the tax collector who's, you're not that you're supposed to be like a tax collector, but a tax collector experiencing change and experiencing repentance, we are supposed to be like that. And so you've got these two people going up to the temple to pray, and one person standing prays like, I'm all that. I'm not like all these other people, all these other wicked people. And he even points at the tax. So I'm not like that chump right there. I know what you did, man. I'm so glad, God, that I'm not like that. Here's all the things I do. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything. I never miss an opportunity to tithe. But the tax collector was different. Be merciful to me, a sinner. So the Pharisee is the person we're not supposed to be like because he's like, look how great I am. I'm so self-dependent. I do this. I do that. I don't do this and I don't do that. I, I, me, me, self-dependence. And then one guy that goes, I know I bring nothing to the table. The only thing that could bring me to the table is mercy. And Jesus is like, be that, be that guy. Then he follows that up. I'll skip to the third one. You remember the rich young ruler? He comes up to God, or Jesus, God man, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus is like, yeah, you know the commandments. But interestingly, notice Jesus goes to the second table of the commandments. The first table of the commandments are Godward, what you do toward God. And the second table of commandments are neighbor laws, right? Don't kill your neighbor. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet your neighbor. He's like, you know what the law says? And he goes to the second law. Do this to neighbor, do that to neighbor. He's like, yeah, 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 I did all those. So Jesus says, one thing you lack, and it could be argued, I think, that what Jesus is, is getting at here is the thing you lack is the first table, dude. You do nice things for people, but do you really love God? Do you really love God? Take all your money and give it away right now. He's like, nah, I can't do that. I need my wealth. I'm dependent on my wealth. My wealth is who I am. So Jesus implicitly is saying, you can't even get the first commandment right to worship God and put nothing else before him. So you've got the Pharisee who thinks he's all that because of his righteousness. You've got the rich young ruler who can't let go of all of his stuff because he's dependent on his own wealth. And right in the middle of that wonderful sandwich is this choice meat of what we're supposed to be like. People were bringing little babies to the Lord so that Jesus would touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. 
Jesus doesn't have time for babies, drool everywhere, crying. Like, this is a serious occasion. And Jesus called them, uh, call, called them to him, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child will not enter it. Now, I'm sure the disciples were like, say, what? You know, we've had a lot of time to dwell on it, but if you were in the moment, you're like, huh? But the reason why it's in between that sandwich is because you've got this Pharisee who's got all these things that I did. I'm able to produce my own righteousness. You've got this other guy on the other end. I'm able to produce all my own wealth. I have no needs. I have no needs. And then right there in the middle is a child who needs everything. They don't know how to talk. They don't know how to speak. It's kind of frustrating, right? You're like, oh, my goodness. I cry because I'm tired. Go to sleep. You got to cry for it. Just go to sleep. They don't know how to express. They don't know what's going on. Cry because I'm hungry. Cry because something was taken from me. Or whatever it is. But they cry. And Jesus' point is, when you recognize that you are small completely dependent on God. You're not dependent on your wealth. You're not dependent on your own righteousness. You're right where God wants you to be, but it's going to hurt in this world. And what do you do when you hurt? You come cry to me because I'm the only one that could do anything about it. You don't fix it yourself. Like a little child, you come cry to me. That's prayer. Prayer is verbal dependence on God. So if we're prayerless, we need to recognize that we should probably press into this world a little bit. We should probably build up our hope in Christ's return a little bit and recognize what we're supposed to do when it hurts to wait and when we're tempted to grow weary. Jesus ends with that weighty question, will there be anybody? Will he find faith on earth? Well, of course he'll find faith on earth. He keeps a remnant for himself, but it will be difficult And many who profess Christ may not make it. But the beautiful truth of the gospel is that Jesus not only will return, but he's built this ark for us to be saved through judgment. And that ark is the cross of Jesus Christ. He's provided through his death and resurrection and ascension to the Father a way. We get to enjoy that now, even if it's not fully ushered in, as it will be one day. But in the meantime, we pray real quick points of application just to help, just to help get us going, get us moving with prayer. Okay, I feel like I should be praying. I want to take my fears and my anxieties and my hang-ups and even my weariness, I want to take it to the Lord. One thing that we can derive from this text is don't shy away from catching some heat in this world. Maybe we don't want to speak up about Christ or say something contrary to prevailing culture culture, because we're afraid of catching heat. But if I'm always dodging heat, then I don't get heat. And if I don't get heat, I get cold. And a cold Christian doesn't pray. So lean into it. Don't be a jerk. Don't show up tomorrow at work and be like, hey, sit down. I'm going to give you the gospel, you heathen. Um, 
but I almost would take that over silence, you know, because we want to let that heat drive prayerfulness in our lives. Also, if you are mindful to pray, pray for the Lord's return. This is one thing that only in recent uh, days have I realized that I don't pray enough. I don't pray for his return. Sometimes I pray, wait, wait. But now when I, I see a mass shooting, I see a church get bombed, I'm like, Jesus, can you come ride that horse? Pray for persecuted Christians. We are often too isolated from the global church. You can go to websites like Operation World and find out what's going on in other places and other churches, churches that have to meet in secret, churches that have to meet in private. They're not allowed to. We might spend $15,000 on a church sign out front. They can't even put a paper sign out front to say church meets here. You have to find out word of mouth because they're pressed or persecuted. Gather together with the saints to pray. Uh, Prayer meetings, prayer gatherings, or other gatherings that have prayer in it. Show up. I, I find that maybe some of it is because we're a little bit consumeristic. We show up to things where we get something out of it, even if it's a good something. I'll show up to a worship time because we're going to have songs and people are up here and they practice and they, they serve you by providing this wonderful music as we've seen this weekend. There's going to be a teaching. There's going to be a Bible study. You get to open your Bible and take notes. Those are all good things. I don't know, maybe this church is different than, than mine or other churches I've been part of, but when you say, hey, we're, we're going to have a meeting for just prayer, that tend, attendance tends to dwindle a little bit. It's hard to pray, I get it, but desperate people pray. And I think sometimes churches in our country don't pray intensely because we're pretty comfortable and it hurts our prayer time. But gather with the saints, make the commitment, have a personal prayer plan day and night persistently. I find that if I just close my eyes and pray, my mind wanders a lot, I think too much, and I'm just constantly catching my thoughts and I'm trying to train them. And so uh, a couple things I do is I... I list out prayer requests that I've collected throughout the week or the month, and I write them down. And I'm not going to linger on each one for an hour, but can I at least move through them? And confession, sometimes I do it like in five, ten minutes. I'm just like, I pray that person gets saved. I pray you do this. This person needs a job. Lord, give them a job. And I just keep moving on. But it gives me something to pray and bring to the Lord. And at any rate, Jesus made it pretty plain. Don't stack and heap a bunch of long theological prayers out loud in front of people. God already knows the requests. He doesn't actually need to hear it from you. Praying, in that sense, is more for you than it is for God. But, but to have something written down so I can kind of move through it, 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 it allows me to latch on to something and, and move through some, some prayers that if I left it to just my freestyle thoughts, I, I might leave off. And then the last thing I'll leave you with is pray Scripture. As Jesse just modeled for us moments ago, read a verse or two. Pray it to the Lord. What do I say about it? Well, what does, that, what does that verse say about God? Okay. Is that awesome that that's true about God? That answer is always yes. Well, then thank God for that. Praise God for that. Isn't that how we're taught? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Sanctified be your name. Blessed be your name. Your name is awesome. Your name is set apart. Your name is great. 
My prayers are going to be about your kingdom, for your kingdom to come, your will to be done. Is that verse asking us to do anything? Is it challenging me to be anything different than I am? Adjust anything in my mind, my heart, my life? Probably ask God for help. Lord, help me to be like the person who wrote this psalm. This person seems like they're so in love with you, and I just feel a little dry right now. Help me to get there. Whatever, whatever the verse is, pray it back to God. Sometimes we wonder if we're praying according to God's will. There's one way to do it. If God said it, he wills it. And if I'm praying back to God what he said in Scripture, I'm praying in line with God. Pray Scripture. But overall, be prayerful because Jesus Christ is returning, will bring justice to his elect. And he wants to make sure that when he returns, he finds a faithful people, a praying people. And let's do that now. Father, as we close our Bibles, um, we pray that we wouldn't close our hearts, but that the truths that you uh, teach us in these wonderful words we just studied together would echo in our hearts even past today, out into the rest of this week. May it change the rest of our lives as gradually, little by little, you shape us and fashion us into a praying people, a prayerful people that lean on you with childlike dependence, crying out to you for justice and the return of your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray it. Amen.